If you have your Bible today, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 16, and we will begin in verse 14. Um, Luke chapter 16 and verse 14, and today we're going to look at a text that on the surface seems to be a series of unrelated verses. And it's, uh, it's a difficult passage to try and fit together because Luke appears to be presenting, and, and we know this from other, um, the other Gospels as you compare what they say and, and record and what he records, He's, he's giving us a, a, a condensed uh, format of Jesus' of Jesus's teaching of two or three different things, and, and he kind of condenses them all, doesn't give context, doesn't give explanation, doesn't expand it at all. It's just very, very short and sweet and compact, and he puts it all together. And as we read it, you'll recognize some echoes from the Sermon on the Mount as well as other passages. And I believe that probably Jesus taught these things like the Sermon on the Mount, the content from that, probably taught that multiple times in multiple different locations. It's quite possible that he did that here. But, uh, but even if that's the case, Luke doesn't record all the extra stuff. And so uh, it's, it's very condensed. And so it's, uh, we, we have the, the difficulty is not so much in, in understanding the words that he's saying, though there is a, a, a difficulty there in a place or two, but most of it is just trying to follow his train of thought and why he recorded this part of Jesus' teaching and put it here. But as we work our way carefully through this text, I think that you'll see it all does fit together uh, quite nicely. So if you found Luke 16 and are able, I'd like you to say it in honor of God's Word. We'll pick up in verse 14 and read down to verse 18. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the first thing I want you to see today is that God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. Now, to put this in context, remember what we looked at last week. Jesus is teaching the disciples in in the first part of uh, Luke 16. And so in, in that part, you remember he talked about the unrighteous steward, and, uh, and he talked about the love of money, and he concluded that with, uh, you cannot serve two masters because you'll either one to lo- love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. That is the context of what he's saying. He is teaching the disciples. This is not given as a general teaching to the crowd. This is for those who follow him. And, and so part of that, he talks about how we should invest for eternity. We should take the... the the, the resources that God has given us specifically talks about our, our financial resources, our money, and use those, those things to spread the gospel. He, he terms it, make friends for yourselves, and, and, um, and, and he's talking about spreading the gospel to those who haven't heard. So then you get verse 14, and the Pharisees hear this. Now again, Jesus is not teaching the Pharisees. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and yet here are these Pharisees who are here eavesdropping, if you will. They're, they're standing around scoffing at him and his teaching. Now, usually when we think of the Pharisees, we think of the hostility, the out-and-out hostility that they have towards him. But there is also this mocking that's going on during his ministry. Now, specifically, I want you to notice in verse 14 
what these guys were scoffing at. Why were they mocking Jesus? Verse 14 says they, they did this because they were lovers of money and they were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. In other words, Jesus' words struck a nerve. To put it another way, if you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one you hit. And he hit them. He, he, he talked about the love of money and the right use of money and, and financial stewardship. And this was something that, that, that struck a nerve with them because they loved money. They loved financial gain. Yes, Jesus called them things like whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers. But he didn't often talk about how they loved money. But that was something that was part of their religious facade. They, they would put on airs, but really they loved money. Everybody thought that they loved God. And they may have, but they were trying to serve two masters. They had one foot in, in the church, so to speak, and one foot at the bank, so to speak, and they were trying to straddle the fence. And, and, God, and Jesus says that God looks at the heart, if you'll notice uh, verse 15. God doesn't look on the outside, and He doesn't see what man sees. He looks on the inside at our innermost being. God sees our loves and our affections and our motivations. God knows it all. And so these guys hear Jesus, and they scoff at his teaching. And the words that are the, the word that's used there when it talks about scoffing, it means they they treated him with contempt. They had disdain for Jesus. the The, the terminology literally means they turn their nose up at him. They, they I, I read this and I'm reminded of Psalm one, because it says that's that Psalm says how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the uh, the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit, where? In the seat of scoffers. And that's where these guys were. They planted themselves in the seat of scoffers. They were mocking Jesus. And they thought that his teaching, frankly, was dumb. And so they scoff at him, they make fun of him. And Jesus turns to address them in verse 15. And he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. And notice the contrast. They are worried about looking good to people. They're worried about looking good before men, but they don't give a lot of thought about looking good before God. Their, their emphasis, their focus was on the outward. Now, why is that a bad thing? Well, the, it's bad because Jesus tells us that God doesn't have the same set of standards. He doesn't have the same values that we have. We don't value what God values. God has a different set of scales than we have. God has a different paradigm than what we have teachers god has a different rubric than what we use he has a he, he knows what's on the innermost part of us he knows our hearts now there's a bit of popular wisdom in today's society that's not really wisdom it's not very wise and that bit of wisdom is just follow your heart just follow your heart and it's it's not uncommon for people today who will get, in, they'll, they'll follow their heart. They'll get into a bad situation. Their their life is falling apart around them, and somebody will come along and say, "Well, they'll say, well, I'm I'm trying to figure out what to do." And somebody will come along and say, "Well, friend, just follow your heart. That'll lead you the right way. Just just follow your heart." The problem with that is Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he goes on to say in verse ten. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. 
So somebody says, if we follow your heart, that's why God's in the mess to begin with. Don't do that. Instead, follow God. Follow the scriptures. Don't follow your heart. And so what I'm saying is, we as people focus on a lot of outward stuff, and our values don't match what God values. And we focus on things like appearance. We focus on things like status. We focus on things like keeping up with the Joneses, or prestige, or job title, or all the rest. But God's focused on what's on the inside. He's focused on the heart. He's focused on our motivations and our loves. And these guys professed to love and follow God, but the real master was wealth. And as I said before, they were trying to serve two masters. And as Jesus said, you can't do it. And so that's what these guys were finding out. So, so they scoff at him. And on the surface, he, he, he tells them that, that what they value is, is detestable in the sight of God. Verse 16 on the surface, it seems like what he's talking about is something new. What he's, what he's doing is something new. What he's calling people to is something new. But as verses 16 and 17 point out, that's not the case. He, he tells us there that the kingdom is the completion of the Old Testament. The kingdom is the completion of the Old Testament. Look at verse 16. It says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, when it speaks about the law and the prophets, that's an idiomatic way of saying what we call the Old Testament. It's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. Because the Jews broke up the Hebrew Scriptures into three parts. They called it the Tanakh. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And so when he says the law and the prophets, that's just a, a shorthand way of saying the Hebrew Scriptures, their Bible what we used to call the Old Testament. And he says that, that up until that point, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, had been proclaimed until the time of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And since that time, Jesus came onto the scene, and he ushered in something new. Because what did John the Baptist say? He said that, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. In Christ we have the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and enter the kingdom. And since that time, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached along with this call to repentance. And so there's something new, but it's really a continuation of the old. The, the law and the prophets has, has led up to this point, and it's all pointed to Christ, and the, the kingdom is finally coming. But if you'll notice, verse 16, it might, might have made you scratch your head whenever you were reading it. Look at verse 16 again. It says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached. The gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. Now, what does that mean? That's one of those things when you read it, you kind of scratch your head, right? Now, the, the, the wording that's used has the idea of pressing in or, or crowding in, of, 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 of putting forth effort to try and get in. And as I read this and I was thinking about things, I was reminded of my college days. Because back in college, um, we decided, Scarlett and I and, and a couple friends, decided to go to the movies. Now, we were in, in Bolivar, and so the, the, the campus, we were at SBU, and the campus was right real close to the theater. And we did something that was not exactly legal. We decided to get all four of us in my S10 pickup. 
which is not an extended cab. And if you've ever been in an S10, you can fit two people in pretty comfortably. If you have people with narrow hips, you can fit in three, and it's tight. But we had four, and we didn't want to take two vehicles. Have you ever done that? I'm not going to ask you to admit to something illegal in church. But you probably have done this if you're at least driving age. You try and squeeze everybody in. You know what I'm talking about? Because you don't want to take two vehicles. You don't want to make two trips. So you try and squeeze everybody in. And so what do you do? The driver's leaning out the window, trying to get, you know, trying to get maneuver. And then you have somebody sitting on somebody else's lap. And then you, okay, everybody, suck you in your guts. Take a deep breath. And we're all going to go this way and try and close the door, right? And And you squeeze in. You're putting forth the effort to crowd in. And then once that door gets closed, I was like, a, opening the doors like opening a can of biscuits. I mean, poof, it's, I don't know where that came from. But anyway, <laughs> that was not part of the notes. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's a can of biscuits. And you know what I'm talking about if you've ever done it. Now, I say all that to say this. Jesus says that these people are trying, they're putting forth this effort to crowd into the kingdom. This is not a lot different from what he said back in Luke chapter 13. Because in Luke chapter 13, he said to strive to enter the kingdom. He says strive to enter in through the narrow gate. To put forth effort. Not to work for your salvation, but but entering the kingdom should be your utmost goal. And you should put forth every effort, every every fiber of your being should be geared towards getting in the kingdom. You should be trying to squeeze in. You should be entering it by force. And that's what he's talking about here. He's, he says, everybody that's getting in is getting in because they are striving after the kingdom. They are trying to get in. They are they're, they're trying to squeeze in through the gate. That is That should be our goal in life. So, since Jesus is is bringing in this new era of salvation history. It's a continuation, a completion of the Old Testament. Does that mean that the law, then, is no longer necessary, is no longer important? Well, that's not the case at all, because if you look at verse 17, he says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Now, the Bible is clear that there are certain aspects of the law that are no longer binding on us. For instance, the Sabbath. The Bible says that in, that, that, that in Christ we find our Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And as you enter Christ, that's when you find rest for your souls. The Bible says that uh, it talks about the Passover. And yet in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says in part that Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. These things point ahead to Christ. And so there are aspects of the law which do not, they're no longer binding on us, such as that. Those ceremonial laws, those sacrificial laws, those are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus said he didn't come to negate the law, but to fulfill the law. So then what is the purpose of the law? Those parts that are uh, binding on us, those things, uh, the, the Bible says they, the, the law's purpose is to tell us what God is like. It serves as a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It tells us this is... This is what God's like, and this is what He expects of you. This is what He requires of you. And as you look at that, you realize how far short of that you come, and you recognize your need for a Savior. You, need, you recognize that, that need for some outside help. You recognize a need for righteousness that's not your own, and you can't 
you can't achieve it by keeping the law. And so those, the, the law still has a function, and it finds its completion in Christ and the kingdom. But then he closes in verse 18, and he concludes with what we might call Exhibit A. And, and the Pharisees, and this is, this is talking about the continuing uh, function of the law. This is a concrete example, but, but also the Pharisees were very particular about following the letter of the law. But they usually miss the spirit of the law. And this the, the marriage is one of those areas. Because there were two schools of thought that were popular in the days of Jesus. There was the, the, the group that said marriage is important. Uh, divorce, it's not, it's not something to be entered into lightly. It's permissible at times, but, but, but it's, it's, it should be the exception to the rule. The other group said, man, you can get divorced for any reason. And so there was a group of rabbis, and there were a lot of Pharisees who, who went in this group that said, if your wife burns your supper, you can divorce her. If, if you find a woman that you like better, you can divorce the wife that you got. Now, you just think what kind of pressure. What, I mean, can you imagine being in a situation where, where if you burnt the toast? I mean, how many times has... So, I'm not going to get into smoke detectors and all that. But you know, you you can imagine how often things like that would happen. And so there were these groups and there were many Pharisees who went along with this idea that you can you can just divorce your wife for any old reason. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's he's given a concrete example of the enduring nature of some of these parts of the law. And understand that verse 18 is just a summation. There, there, it's fleshed out more in places like Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, so on and so forth. But what he's saying is God's plan for marriage from the beginning has been one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's, that's, the, that's the plan. And what he show, shows here in verse 18, he says, Whoever, or Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. In other words, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In other words, marriage is, is deeper than a societal contract. It's, it's bigger than a, than, than a societal norm. I've, I've worked with people, and they said things like, Well... You know, I don't see any reason to get married. It's just a piece of paper. No, marriage is more than a piece of paper. Marriage is a joining of the two to become one. And things like no-fault divorce don't break that connection in the eyes of God. Because those two are still, married, are, are still one in the eyes of God. And that's why verse 18 is, is the case. Because if, if that separation has not happened and then a marriage to one of those parties occurs... That's where the act of adultery comes in. So Jesus points out, these guys pretend they're following God. They pretend and, and try to put on like, like they are, are, are devoted to God. That They're trying to be obedient to everything that God says, but they're disobedient in money. They're disobedient in the, 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 the point of marriage. In other words, they're religious pretenders. And there are other areas that they failed in, but those were the two that he highlights. 
And it may be that, that something like that describes you. Maybe you are pretty good at being a religious pretender. Maybe you are, like these Pharisees, a lover of money. Maybe it's some other area in your life that you, you have everybody at church convinced that everything is good, but God knows your heart. He knows what your motivation is. And don't say that God knows your heart like it's a defense. Yes, He knows your heart, and that should scare you to death. Because it's the condition of your heart that's the problem to begin with. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, and do that today. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And just in the quiet of this time, I want to encourage you to examine your hearts. Are you a religious pretender? Are you a lover of money? Do you value those things that God finds detestable? And don't think that because it's your authentic self that that's a, that's a defense. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you know our hearts. Thank you that you love us anyway. And that you offer salvation for, to those who will call on you. Even if we've been a religious pretender, even if we have been a lover of money, even if we have... Um, focused on things and exalted things and valued things that are detestable in your sight, there's forgiveness for that and we thank you for that, Lord. And God, I ask that if there's somebody here who's never accepted Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, I pray that you'd help us to not be religious fakes, but that we would be true to you and we'd only have one master we try to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.